You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Has anyone been to Hilton Head, South Carolina? We got four winners on this side over here. Hilton Head, South Carolina, one of the most fun trips that I've ever been a part of in my life. I was a college student, and some of my good friends and their parents had access to a condo in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and they gave me the opportunity to go with them, to bum a ride with them, and stay at this location for free. Now, as a Poe college student, I say Poe because I couldn't even afford the R in po- I, a place to stay for free, free ride. All I got to do is pay for meals and things like that. This is incredible. I am in, let alone it's with some of my best buds, right? Incredible time. Now, where we were staying, it was minutes from the beach. Again, huge perk. I'm in, right? What I wanted to do was tell you a short story from this trip. I think we were there for four or five days. A part of this condo area where we were staying, a part of the facilities, is in each condo, they gave you bicycles. And these bicycles were meant for you to borrow so that you could ride from the condo to the beach, which turned about a 15, 20-minute walk into about a five-minute bike ride. It was a beautiful ride, incredible scene. You go through this canopy of trees, uh, and then you, you drive on this bike trail through uh, a, a kind of a wetlands area. There's a pond, and in this pond, there was actually an alligator named Benny. This uh, alligator named Benny was there, and he was always out, and you, it was like, you could take pictures with him and stuff, and it was like a real gator, so you needed to kind of stay away from him. You, you come up, you cross over the main drag, and boom, you're there. You're there at the beach. So we did this dozens of times, okay? Now, this time was a little bit different. One afternoon, we decided we wanted to ride back to the beach, this beautiful ride. Uh, underneath the canopy of trees, we cut by the small pond. We noticed that Benny, this time, was on this side of the pond, closest to us instead of the furthest side. Just a little, you know, a little, not, I'm not a, you know, a Discovery Plus guy, you know, I'm not one of those. But it was closer to us than normal, which will come into effect later. We were all riding down the beach. I was at the front of the uh, uh, peloton, if you will, right? The front of our group riding forward. And one of my good buddies, his name was Drew, was towards the back. And so we were just kind of motoring along, trying to get to the beach, trying to milk as much of the afternoon at the beach as we could. Little did I know that my buddy Drew, the beginning of getting right towards the, uh, down by the pond and, and Benny, the alligator, he steps on it, and he kind of starts cranking on the bike pedals, right? And I, I failed to mention this earlier, but these bikes were not the most new bikes, okay? A little bit rusty, a little bit crusty, a little bit sea salt, sea, you know, salt life kind of stuff, you know what I'm saying? And so what he does, he's cranking on this, and then you just hear a snap. The bike chain snaps. He goes head over handlebars skidding on the blacktop bike pavement from his chin to his ankles, okay? Landing, and now he's about 40 yards away from Benny the alligator, okay? Now, I had no idea. I was at the front of the the group, right? And he's towards the back. 
there were five or six of us. I had no idea until I hear my buddy shrieking, Help! Brett! As he is army crawling on the pavement, just gashed open, road rash, burnt. He's just, it's bad, okay? Now, uh, we had no idea. You know, we, we just kept going, and he's here. You know, it's like, you know, what are, what are you doing? But you have to understand a little bit about me is I love physical humor, okay? It's one of the, like, as far as comedy goes, physical humor is up there for me, okay? As long as I know that the person's all right at the end, you know, then I feel like I have justified to laugh, okay? So knowing that he was okay and, and seeing that we, we picked him up, we, we cleaned him up, we got him back to the condo where he could kind of nurse his road rash and everything, uh, we just died laughing because, <laughs> I mean, just think of the, the amount of panic that I saw on his face as he's crawling on the pavement knowing that Benny the alligator is right there, not knowing where exactly Benny the... And so we're just sitting there dying laughing at our, at our buddy's uh, pain and, and sorrow, right? And so you guys are like, what a jerk, Brett. You're sick. You're sick. But it's funny, okay? He's a big dude. He's like six foot two, six foot three, and he's head over the handlebars. He's got like gashes. Okay, anyway, my point, upon reflection, um, what it makes the story even more funny to me is the idea that there were people on the bike trail when we were going in opposite directions. So they saw what happened with my buddy before I did. So just imagine their context of this whole story. They're seeing a group of guys ride off, leave their friends stranded, hurting in front of this gator, and he's shriek, he's yelling for them, and they're like, man, these guys are jerks. Or I like to think about what if you were a car and you had just driven by that area as you see this big dude fly over the handlebars and skid with his, kind of lands on his chin and skids on the, no broken bones or anything. But just imagine the stories they were telling that night at dinner, right? It's funny. It's funny because not understanding the context of something, uh, it's just kind of comical, right? But at this point, why do I tell you this story? One, if you're in Hilton Head, South Carolina, riding a, an old bike, please be careful. But two, what makes the story funny is that the other people and how they witness this scene, their different vantage point. For bike riders seeing us keep riding after our friend had this epic crash, they would have thought we were jerks, just stranding him there. My point is not understanding truly what happens looking upon this scene. People would have no idea that we were actually dear friends of this guy. We cared about him, and we were in it for his safety, even though we might have been laughing at the time, right? Context is crucial. Similarly, they would have no context for this man seeing him crying and, and, and moving along, army crawling on the sidewalk. An entire branch of theological studies is devoted to context. It's called hermeneutics. Okay? This is why at Mercy's Door we labor to preach the Bible left to right from verse 1 to the end of the book because context is very important. 
we can't take a verse, a singular verse, and it cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to the big picture of who it was written to, right? Context is crucial, just like onlookers must have been very confused at this bike accident and scene. Not only is it vitally important as we open scriptures to understand the context of what we're reading, but I think today's text gives insight to an even, big, even bigger picture of context. Okay? This bigger picture is in Jesus' ministry and teaching philosophy. For months now, we've been in the farewell discourse of John, and this is Jesus' final private time with his disciples. And, and at the tail end of last week, And even this week, we hear Jesus teaching his disciples that there is something coming. There is someone coming, and it will be better. It will be better for this helper to come than for me to stay. Now, this other helper we we know as the Holy Spirit. But all this context is wrapped into one thing. And my first observation I want you to take away Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus taught in the context of his ministry was in the context that the Holy Spirit was going to come and finish. Everything he did, everything he said, everything he left unsaid was in the context that the Holy Spirit would come and it would be for our advantage. It's where we're going today. If we're honest, When we talk about the Spirit, we talk about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, we truly do not know much of the third person of the Trinity. Recently, an author, a speaker, uh, our sister Jackie Hill Perry, she was uh, quoted as saying, you know, we often fear the Holy Spirit more than we fear Harry Potter. Okay, and this isn't a slight at Harry Potter, you know, we, we, you know, it's not a slight at Harry Potter, but the point that she's trying to make is that We are afraid and fearful. We don't want to wade into the waters of the Holy Spirit when we'll jump straight into wizards and spells and all this different kind of thing, right? The Holy Spirit, we should not label as science fiction or fantasy, or we shouldn't live as if it doesn't exist. What we're going to look at today, if... The context of Jesus' ministry was bookend by him teaching his disciples, by teaching us that there was going to be someone to come after him and it would be better for us. It is important for us to more clearly see the role and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church in us. So that's where we're going to do today the work of the spirit is threefold if you're a note taker if you're with us on the bible app you will see the holy spirit in this text is threefold first the holy spirit provides conviction provides instruction and provides glorification for the past month or so now maybe five six weeks we have been reading strictly red letters and we're going to continue that today verse eight When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In short, the Spirit will continue the ministry of Jesus. 
The Spirit isn't going to do anything that Jesus hadn't already been doing because it is the same ministry. It is the same work, right? Let's break this down. And when he comes, we're always talking about when he, when Jesus is referring to he, he's meaning the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He will convict the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. But let's look at convict. What does convict mean? There's two potential ways we can read this. When we hear conviction, we can think of one as a judicial uh, statement. If there's going to be a, uh, a, a conviction sentence brought down, right? This is what it means, conviction. But this is not the context. This is not the appropriate meaning what we mean here. What Jesus is meaning in this context is more of a convincing. And who is he convincing? He's convincing us. He's convincing the world of something better. Primarily, the Holy Spirit is convincing the world of their need of a Savior. And in other words, the Holy Spirit is saying, is proving the world has got it wrong. Okay? The conviction comes threefold in the text concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's look at the first one, sin. The Holy Spirit will convict sin concerning sin because they do not believe in me. What is sin? We talk about it a lot, as we should, right? Sin, when you break down what sin is, I think often in our minds we think solely of our actions or inactions, the fruit of bad behavior, the things that we do that we are guilty of. But this my friends, and I think you would agree with me, is if we're honest, this is really just the tip of the iceberg. The fruit of our sin reveals to us that there is something much greater, much more nefarious at work. And you hear this folly throughout uh, the New Testament, throughout Jesus' ministry, when people came to him boasting in their pride of, well, I have been holding these, I've been doing these commandments since birth. Or uh, what should a young man do to, to, uh, to follow you? All of the times that Jesus encounters someone boasting in what they have done or not done, how they have followed the rules uh, or, or not done the bad thing, what does Jesus do? What is his response to them in every situation? He always looks into their mind, looks into their heart, because he made their heart, right? Looks into their heart and cuts right to the core right he isn't masquerading wanting to know what the outward appearance is okay when the inward appearance is filthy right man looks at the outward appearance but god judges the heart right and so sin and jesus is a jesus is after a heart thing whenever we sin we have to understand that it's the tip of the iceberg and whatever the action you may see, right? Whether it's lying, stealing, murder, adultery, cheating, there's something much deeper beneath the surface in your life, right? If you remember the uh, um, Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is, is sharing the ser Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, okay, do not murder, you've heard it say, but now I even say, don't be angry in your heart towards a brother. It's like committing murder. It says, you've heard it say, do not commit adultery, right? 
But then he takes it a step further. He says, and I even ask you to not look lustfully in your heart, not look lustfully with your eyes, because that's like committing adultery in your heart. The things that Jesus is getting after is a heart issue. It is not the topical things, the fruit, if you will, of our sin, the actions or inactions. He cares. He cares about those things. Don't do them, but he cares much more about your heart. Okay? So, what this passage is teaching in its most basic form, write this down, sin equals unbelief. Sin is unbelief at the heart. Case study. And I'll use myself. I'll put myself under the microscope. Okay? For me, if I'm being a jerk to my wife, the lovely Cat Barton, or if I'm losing my patience with my kids, uh, the action that might come from that sin could present like I snap at the kids. I'm not proud of that. Or it could be that I'm cold and distant to my wife. That's the fruit. That's what the outward appearance shows. And the reason for that is because I'm frustrated my expectations aren't being met. Maybe the the house is too loud or the house is messy or I'm not getting done with what I need to get done, right? Or all this additional stimulus interference that is blocking and I can't even even hear myself think, right? You with me? Yeah? All right, we got two. Thank you. Four people, Hilton Head, two people, okay. Um, I can't concentrate. Well, if you take that a step further, and ask why. I feel like things, if it's like that, my expectations aren't being met. If I take it a step further, I, I, what I'm feeling is that things are out of control. And I don't, I don't like things being out of control. I'm not getting done with everything that I need to get done with, is what I'm really feeling. That I am, and then, inevitably, I'm going to let someone down. That's what I'm really feeling. If I take that a step Further, what I'm believing about myself is that I am the one that must take care of everything. What I'm believing in that is I am the one that people need to show up and provide for them. What I'm believing is that if I don't have things in control in my life, in the lives of my family, in the lives of the people that I'm closest to, that their lives are going to spiral into chaos if I don't have things in control. What I'm believing is that because of me, because of my inaction, action or inaction, and not being able to have the situation controlled, you or my family is going to be negatively affected. That's what I'm functionally believing. So if that's what I believe about myself, what am I believing about God in that moment? This is what I'm believing about. I'm believing that he isn't in control. I'm believing that he is not sovereign. I'm believing that he isn't a better provider than me. That he doesn't have the world. Matthew 5, it says, the world is his footstool. I'm not believing that. I'm believing that he doesn't want good for me. I'm believing that he doesn't want good for the children that he has gifted to me. I'm believing ultimately he's evil that he's distant, that he doesn't care about me and my family. Ultimately, this is extreme pride. 
and elevating myself and my station and my control and my influence way higher than it needs to be. Because how foolish is it it for me to say these things that he isn't in control, that he isn't sovereign, that he doesn't care about me, that he doesn't care about the family and kids that he has given to me. Ultimately, this is extreme pride on my part. And I'm saying, ultimately, God, move over. I would do a better job. What grace that he has shown me. This is unbelief. This is sin. It's not just the outward things that I do or have not done, but at the heart level, sin is unbelief that God and Jesus are not who they say they are. Sin corrupts everything, and it needs to be pulled out by the root. Church, I say this humbly, and I say it to myself. You are worse than you even know. Can I ask you a thought-provoking question? Have you forgot what you've been saved from? Take account of your life. Take account of your life in the last year, year and a half. The last month, the last week, this morning. And recall the grace that God has poured out on you for this morning. That's great. Unbelief is sin, and this is what the Spirit is convicting us of sin because they do not believe in me, Jesus says. So for the text today, the Spirit is convicting the world that things are wrong and that primarily their unbelief is that the world does not believe Jesus is who he said he is. What we're saying when we don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, it's like Jesus offering us this good gift of grace and us us refusing it. This is what the Spirit's coming to do, convicting us of our sin and unbelief. The Spirit is convicting concerning sin, but it's also convicting concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, when we first started having kids, uh, we started reading all these books on you know, uh, child development and how to be a good parent and how to screw it up and how to, you know, all this stuff. All right? And so this, this uh, idea, uh, we read it uh, a couple times, it's called Object Permanence. Right, object permanence with my kids, and especially with babies, is this concept that babies cannot cannot understand. They don't have the capacity or reasoning to understand that objects are permanent. If, this is why when you walk out of the room, they get scared and cry because they don't know where you went. They think you're gone. Right. This is why peekaboo works because when babe when you put your hands up over your face and a baby's like, where did they go? Right. So this is kind of what is going on here. Jesus is again telling his disciples that you will see me no longer. He's making it abundantly clear to his disciples. I am leaving. You will see me no longer. One commentator said it like this. The Spirit would guide them, the disciples, to the new economy in which they would no longer have the visible example and help and counsel of their master. Some translations 
instead of righteousness concerning, convict the world concerning righteousness. Some, some translations, NASB, I believe, say uh, instead of righteousness, they say justice. Okay, what does this mean? The Spirit here is getting it, breaking down the way we, the world, justify our existence. You ever thought about that? What are the things that you do, primarily you might be motivated by justifying your existence on this planet. The reason you do what you do or don't do what you don't do could be driven by you trying to prove that you're valuable, that you're worth existing. Okay? So, the Spirit, again, obliterates self-righteousness in terms of conviction. The work will be continued by the Spirit. For example, when Jesus, when he confronts the Pharisees about their empty life, he always says, you know this book of the law, but you don't. You know it here, but you don't know it here because this book of the law is about me and you don't know me. Right? In the same way, righteousness is delivered through another, not by what we do. They and we alike are so off, think so often that our righteousness is on a measurement scale. They think our, we think that our righteousness is on a GS scale. We think that our, our righteousness is on a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately scale. Right? And we try to be more righteous and therefore prove our worth, justify our existence and our value because we are therefore righteous to God. This is not what the Bible teaches. And hopefully if you've heard one thing at Mercy's Door, well, two things. You've heard your love beyond belief. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But two is that this is not how we live as Christians. We live paradoxically. The world says, I do, therefore I am. This is the way of the world. The way of Scripture, the way of truth is I am. Therefore, I do. I am a child of God. Therefore, I act like a child of God. I am declared righteous and holy and blameless. Therefore, I act as one holy and righteous and blameless. Not in my own power. I did nothing to be declared who I am. Therefore, we walk humbly and we trust and we repent and we confess because the Spirit is coming to convict the world because He is no longer here as an example. Every time, church, you sense the tug of conviction from the Spirit, this should be a reminder to us that Jesus has gone and the Holy Spirit has come and is continuing the work that He started. That's incredible to think about. The work that we're reading about in the text, okay, in the Middle East, John, right here, okay, 2,000 years ago. That work is continuing on through the Holy Spirit, which is alive in us right now. It's not a new work. Yet, the Spirit is continuing Jesus' work to deeper degrees. This should also remind us that Jesus, in his physical form on earth, accomplished everything he set out to do. And he said, what did he say at the end? It is finished. Proof that it is finished is that he sent the, the Spirit to continue. The death blow 
has been dealt to sin and to Satan, yet we await complete victory, right? The fighter has been knocked out, but the bell hasn't rung. That's where we live. The Spirit comes convicting concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Rulers. Here we could also be understanding of, instead of rulers, we could read powers of the world. Ultimately, this means Satan. Right? Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the god, small g, of this world, and he is defeated. He is judged. He will be. He is judged and will be judged. Again, proving the spirit is saying the world has it wrong. The spirit in convicting and convincing us ultimately is saying the world has it wrong concerning sin and righteousness and now judgment. This was echoed by Paul in his letter to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 6, uh, 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The judgments of this world, the powers of this world, are poor. They are poor. We see that example throughout the world today but we see it in the example here of them crucifying an innocent man taking him when he did no wrong john macarthur says satan the ruler of this world who as the god of this world has perverted the world's judgment and turned people from believing in jesus as the messiah and son of god The world, the rulers, the powers of this era, is, uh, they've got it wrong. They have judged poorly, and they will be judged. But if we're honest, the cross is not a good look, right? The optics aren't good. The optics aren't good for the followers of Christ. This king, this champion of heaven, who has done miracles in their sight, who's teached unbelievably, taught unbelievably, what has happened? It's like, oh, the Romans got him. Satan got him. What are we going to do now? Right? But what does he do? What does he say? Jesus took the sin, took the righteousness, the, the judgment that accuses and condemns the world, condemns you and condemns me unto himself and unto death. He took that with him to death and put it to death. Therefore, sin dies with him. The punishment, the penalty, the power of sin dies with him as he takes it upon the cross for us. The accusations, the guilt, the shame, the sin, the power of sin fully and completely forever dealt with. Colossians 2.15 says, He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and judges, the powers that be in this world, when they have Jesus in their grips, it's not looking good. If that's only the context we see it in. The fullness of his understanding, he says, give me your worst, and willingly walks into their worst. 
at the garden, we'll read here in a few weeks, the betrayal finally happens and he is finally seized. There was no fight. And I love this. I probably talk about it every time. I love how confident and powerful Jesus is to say, take me. You take me, but you have no power over me. This is our God, ladies and gentlemen. This is our Savior. When it looks really, really bad, he, in fact, is causing the end of those rulers and powers that are against him. It's paradoxical. We, he is victorious by laying down his life. Everything that the world says is, should be victorious, triumphant. He does the very opposite. The Spirit will lead to true judgment. The Spirit convicts concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Let's continue on. So the Spirit, that was point one, sub point one, two, three. Now we're on point two for those trying to track with me. Point two. The Spirit's um, work and role is in instruction. Conviction, instruction. Verse 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 12, it reminded me of a story from an author and a hero, Corey Tinboom. Uh, she's an author, a great book called The Hiding Place, and her and her family are said to have uh, rescued over 800 uh, Jews from Nazi Germany, and it's incredible, incredible story, incredible um, account of the glory of God being used um, in these faithful people. One day she asked her father, you might know the story, she asked her father a pretty serious question about life and about adulthood, and um, in that he, he responded as a good father. He said, it would be pretty, pretty poor. They were at a train station. Sorry, let me set up the context. They were at a train station when she asks, asks this, carrying luggage onto the train, and this is what her father says. It would be pretty, uh, it, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask this little girl to carry such a load. In the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you're older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. I was reminded of that. But isn't that the same today? The goodness of God and the Spirit to reveal to us our sin in time and provides a way for us to deal with our sin in time. If you and if I were revealed the depths of our depravity, we would be crushed. We would fall into an endless cycle of depression and anxiety and fear and worry and sorrow because we cannot hold the weight of how broken and sinful we are. Church, you are worse. I am worse than I know. See, the, this reminds me of that Chris Tomlin song. You, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. Oh, what a good God. But this also demonstrates the harmony between the Son and the Spirit. Jesus is confident enough to leave these things undone. Jesus doesn't deal with everyone's, all of their sin. He does ultimately, but he doesn't on the sanctification level, right? He, uh, he's confident enough to leave these things undone, knowing the Spirit is going to continue the work. 
verse 13, more descriptors of the Spirit. The Spirit of truth will be your guide to all truth. The Spirit is constantly flying the banner that there is a new way to live. We don't live according to this world anymore. We live according to the truth. This is the, the promise, the purpose, the work of the Spirit is to instruct the disciples. This is a supernatural revelation of the truth, similar to um, when we were out at the park this summer, we, we looked at the, the case of Lazarus, right? And that's a physical picture of what's going on supernaturally in our spirit. The effectual call, the power of Jesus' call to tell a dead man to stand up and walk out. In truth. Because this truth gives the ability to do what we cannot do. We are enabled to speak and live truth because the Spirit is truth. We can do the things that are true now because the Spirit is true and tells us to do true things. This is the calling, the effectual, the power, the authority that not only is it true in saying it, but it has the creative majesty to make it happen. We, can ma- we can't make anything happen on our own, but it's the Spirit who is truth, who's flying and waving the banner that there's a new way to live in truth, allows and permits us to do it. So, we are enabled to live because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit brings to light truth and a life lived in truth and things that have always been true. The same Spirit that gave Moses and empowered Moses to approach Pharaoh and say, this person with ultimate authority in the time, right? To approach the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. This same Spirit also empowered the disciples and the New Testament writers to to write the New Testament, what we read today. This is the same Spirit, alive and proclaiming truth to us today. And we reap that, the benefits of it. The Spirit convicts, the Spirit instructs, and lastly, the Spirit glorifies. Glorification, verse 14. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John Piper once said that these first four words of verse 14 are the most important verses about the work of the Holy Spirit in all of the Bible. What does it say? He will glorify me. The work of the Spirit is to magnify Christ, exalt Jesus. By declaring truth, the Spirit is declaring Jesus. And declaring Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did, not only on earth, but in the heavenly realms as well. The Holy Spirit wants our focus on Christ always fixing our mind to, always seeing Him rightly, always glorifying Christ. I think I have a quote. One commentator said it like this, Notice that it is not the Spirit's function to attract attention to Himself or to promote Himself. As with John the Baptist, His purpose 
is to make Jesus increase in prominence. This fact should make suspect any human attempt to glorify the Spirit above the Son. Such an emphasis is not in harmony with the Spirit's purpose. Church, we can have bad theology when we feel like we need to. I've heard this, uh, and it's kind of a, maybe a joke, I don't know, but you kind of hear this, we need to activate the Holy Spirit. Something. Well, that's bad theology because the Spirit is alive and has been alive and working, activated from the beginning of eternity. There is no need for you. It's like you think the Spirit is dormant inside of you and you need to do something in order to get it on the forefront of your life. That is wrong. That is wrong because it, it ultimately empowers and glorifies the Spirit in a way that the Spirit's role is not in play. It's not functioning the way that it was meant to do. The Spirit's objective is to glorify the Son. And the Spirit is glorifying the Son. The Spirit has been glorifying the Son and will continue to glorify the Son whether you think it's activated or not or I think it's activated or not. This is where we can get into some, some funky thoughts on the Spirit. We think that it is a, a spell that we need to cast in our life. It's simply not true, church. This is another picture of the Blessed Trinity. We see the Father's full majesty and full power on display. We see the perfect substitution of the Son and His ability to live it out, and we see the empowerment of the Spirit to keep us and to glorify Jesus the same task is being accomplished in three unique ways, all in perfect coordination. It's the Trinity. It's the perfect holiness. This confirms the possession of Christ, which is the church. The Spirit makes known to the church who is the church. The Spirit makes known to the church and to the world who is the church as well. Because these Spirit, these people living in the truth, will fly in direct contradiction to what is untrue. And therefore, the Spirit is given to believers, to us, so that we can understand fully who is the church, who are my brothers and sisters, and who is the world. The fact that the Spirit's work is to glorify Jesus also should be a great comfort to us. As the fact that we are the possession of Christ. We are His. He is the shepherd. We are his flock. We are his. The picture of the veil being torn in the temple shows us that his presence, the presence of God, is not contained in the Holy of Holies anymore, but because of his great gift, the Spirit, his presence, now resides in us forever. This should be great comfort to us, church. In conclusion, let's not forget my silly story about Hilton Head, South Carolina. The context and the confidence Jesus had in leaving the work of his ministry and following, you know, sidebar here, is there something that is left undone in your life or in the lives of people that you care about? And you're, do you not think that God cares so much more about that person than you do? God cares so much more about that area of your life than you might. Jesus had confidence to leave things undone because he knew there was a spirit coming to continue the work. All that had been built, his whole ministry, all of his teachings had been built being left to the spirit that will never leave. The spirit would continue this ministry because it is the same 
ministry. What the Holy Spirit does, these are things that I've mentioned today. Convict, judge, instruct, guide, glorify, inspire, empower, give us what is Christ's. This is adoption language we're talking about here and declares. John Piper said it beautifully. As far back into eternity as God the Father has loved the Son, there has been an infinite Holy Spirit of love and delight between them, who is, in, who is himself a divine person. Therefore, as Jesus prays for the church in John 17, he asks his Father for nothing less than the Holy Spirit when he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Luke 11, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Church, the Spirit is a gift. We ought not forget that the Spirit is God. It is a gift, but the Spirit is God. He's not a mystical aspect of Christian life for certain more charismatic traditions of our faith. The Spirit is a gift. The Spirit should be great relief and confidence as you feel and sense the tug of the Spirit and conviction of your life. Be reminded, church, that He is here now because Jesus left. And Jesus is left to go sit at the right hand, accomplishing all that He came to accomplish. It's all accomplished. It's done. And it's continuing to be done. It's just that already but not yet form of our faith. We have confidence that a spirit is indwelling in us because of Jesus' work ultimately. In summary, the Holy Spirit's arrival will be greater for the disciples than Jesus' departure. And this is true for us today because of what it means. The context of Jesus' ministry was based on the fact that he was leaving us in better hands. The work of the Spirit is threefold, concerning, convicts concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He instructs the church in all truth and glorifies our risen Lord Jesus and continually points us to the truth of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.